Would you open your Bible, if you will, to Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4. We've been going through a series called Not Without Blood. And we've gone through a careful journey through the tabernacle and what the Bible has to tell us about the tabernacle and the beautiful picture it paints of Jesus and our life in Him and the redemptive work that He did on Calvary to purchase and redeem you and I through the will of the Father. And we've looked at each piece of the furniture. We've looked at the gate, the, all the symbolism, and we know that every little piece of furnishing and every piece of instruction that God gave to um, Moses regarding the tabernacle, every bit of it points to that redemptive work. And we go look at the New Testament, we can see that. And we've said time and again, borrowing from a, another Bible teacher, a phrase that I've heard before that I think is just wonderful, that the Old Testament is a New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so when we fan back and forth from the Old and New Testament, we get this rich truth. And we're trying to study an earthly tabernacle in order to discern heavenly truth. Because that, hev that earthly tabernacle is but a picture and a type of the throne of God in heaven. And so we've looked time and again from that perspective. What does this mean about our life in Christ? And how can we apply it to the way that we live? We've looked at the seven pieces of the furnishings. And we've come to number seven. And number seven is none other than the mercy seat. Last week, we started out looking at the mercy seat. And this week, we're going to continue to do so, Lord willing, as we uh, look at this text in Romans. And we're going to talk about a special day on the Jewish calendar back then, the Day of Atonement. They call it Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. There were six or seven feasts that were prescribed by the Old Testament and uh, given to God's covenant people. And the Day of Atonement was probably the most pinnacle, solemn one of them all. It was number six of the seven. And the truth that comes out from there about what Jesus did to purchase us should evoke great joy this morning. And that's really what this is about this morning, is about joy. We ought to have the corner of the market on joy as believers. And we're in a culture and a time right now where there's great discouragement and hopelessness. And if there's ever been an exciting time to be a believer, it's now. If there's ever been a time when the light should shine its brightest, it's when it seems to be the most dark around us. That we should be full of hope and joy. Not fake hope, not the power of positive thinking, but the power of biblical thinking. We have grounds to rejoice. The Christian always has grounds to rejoice in the midst of any kind of situation because we are on the winning team. Hallelujah. Amen. And so let's look at Romans chapter 4, and hopefully Romans chapter 4 is just going to be lifted off the page to us in a couple of verses. You who have been going with us through uh, the journey in Romans, this is going to be a review for you. But uh, we want to um, look at Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to looking, be looking at verses 6 through 8. So out of reverence and respect of God's holy word, will you stand with us if you're physically able right now as we read from it? Romans chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Thank you very much. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. We appreciate that. Romans 4, 6 through 8. In this narrative, we're in the middle of Paul's 
beautiful treatment of what it means to be justified by faith. Now, he takes up in Romans 47, I think it is, 47 verses from Romans chapter 3 verse 21 to Romans chapter 5 verse 11 and goes through the doctrine of justification. In the first part of his teaching on the doctrine of justification, he reveals to us what it means. It's the revelation of doctrine of justification. In the second part, all of chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, the entire chapter, he illustrates what justification means for us. And then Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, he applies that. So he reveals it, illustrates it, and applies it. By the way, that should be the way the, the Bible is taught, studied, and lived. Revelation, illustration, application. And we're right in the middle of the illustration. And he uses two Old Testament figures, uh, Old Testament characters, in order to illustrate the doctrine for us. The one he uses primarily is Abraham. But in this text right here, he goes to, the, uh, to, the, uh, to herald the truth that's given to us through, the, uh, through David and quoting from Psalm 103 here, and he quotes that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man and to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, in order to understand where, Paul, where David is coming from and what he's sharing with us right here, we've got to understand the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, the high and holy hour of the Jewish calendar, whereby the priest would enter into the holy place, the high priest, one time per year. We've talked about this before. And he would go into the holy place to the most holy place. And that's the one time per year, once per year, that the high priest himself, not just any priest, but the high priest, by himself exclusively, would go into the most holy place and there... He would take the blood, the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it or spread it with his finger on the mercy seat. Now we talked about last week the mercy seat and tried to describe it in some detail. It is the throne of God because the Bible says in four different passages or five that the mercy seat is the seat of Jesus in heaven where he dwells between the two cherubim. You remember us seeing that last week. That mercy seat is not a mercy, not a seat of mercy unless there's blood on it. Unless there's blood on it. The Bible is a bloody book. Now whether we like that or not, and whether that's try, some people try to douse that nowadays and downplay that, the Bible is a bloody book. The Bible makes it clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The tabernacle was a bloody place. This was where the blood sacrifices were made. And one time per year, once per year, the priests would make a sacrifice of a bull for his own sin and the sin of his family, the high priest. Then they would select by lot, they would draw by lot, and would select two goats. And those two goats were also to be sacrificed. One of them, his blood, his throat was cut, and his blood was spilled into a basin. And the other one was the scapegoat. And we're going to look in the scriptures and see what they would do with both of these. But both of those sacrifices had to be made in addition to the one he made for himself before he could go in there. And he would go into the most holy place and then on into the holy place. And the whole nation would be lined up north, south, east, and west all around the tabernacle. If you had a helicopter and you were to fly above the tabernacle, 
we know from the outline that God gives and the way he said he wanted every tribe positioned as, as they relate to and camp around the tabernacle, that the tabernacle was in the very center and you had tribes to the north, tribes to the south, and tribes to the east, and tribes to the west. And so if you had a bird's eye view of the tabernacle, it would be in the shape of the cross. Hallelujah. 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 And there was high drama on that day. Think about it for just a minute. Here you have the high priest. Here you have making a sacrifice of the bull for his sins and also the sins of his family so that he could have the right to go in there into the most holy place. And you had the whole two and a half million people, north, south, and east, and west, all lined up at the tabernacle. And the only thing that hangs in the balance is their very survival. You see, unless he goes in there, and unless that sacrifice is accepted, they all get wiped out by the judgment of God. Do you think they had a vested interest in whether or not he comes out of that place alive? You see, they were all lined up there, and there was a spirit and a sense of trepidation and fear and anticipation, because they were all just standing there waiting to see what was going to happen. And some of them can see it from a distance, and some of them had to have the word relayed back to them. And we can use our holy imagination and just imagine what it must have been like for everybody to gather around there and think, okay, was the right goat selected? Did the priest do it just right? When he walked by the altar of incense, did he offer the incense with coals that came from the altar, the brazen altar? Or did he, did he, did he take a shortcut and just use any old coal or ember? Because if he did, it wouldn't have been accepted. It's only through the cross that you're saved. It's only through Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. That's it. God's got no other way of salvation. There's no other plan. That's it. Period. End of subject. And if he doesn't go in there and do it just according to the prescribed way, he gets killed and not wiped out by the judgment of God. And so they're all gathered around there. And the drama circles around whether or not they're going to survive as a nation. Is God going to accept the sacrifice? Is he going to be able to atone for our sins? Are we going to get to live? Or can we expect in the next few minutes that while he's in there doing his priestly duties, can we expect in the next few minutes the judgment of an angry God over our wickedness and rebellion? So they're all gathered around there and they're watching to see what happens. And let's go look at Leviticus chapter 21. Let's look at it for a minute. Turn back over to the left, way left, and look at Leviticus chapter 21. I mean Leviticus 16, verse 21. This is the day of atonement. This is the day the Lord has made. And we can rejoice and be glad in it. This is the prescribed day in which God, from the foundation of the world, is a picture and a symbol of the day that He would offer up His one and only begotten Son for the sins of the redeemed, who were once ungodly and rebellious like every one of us. This is the picture of that day. And look what happens. In verse 21, they have the two goats. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by a hand by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities, 
to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. This is the scapegoat. So we have two goats here. One goat, is going to, his throat is going to be cut. He's going to be bled to death. They're going to gather the blood in a basin. And the priest is going to take that blood. And according to the word of God, the prescribed order, he's going to go into the most holy place. He's going to take a coal that came from the brazen altar, which is a symbol of the cross of Christ. And he's going to take that coal and he's going to burn that at the golden altar on the inside in the most holy place. And the incense are going to be placed on there and the incense are going to be burned and that's going to create a cloud. And that cloud is going to go in there and hover over the mercy seat. And once he does that, he's also going to uh, place the blood on the horns of the four corners of the golden altar. And then he's going to move on inside the, into the most holy place. And he's going to do that probably shaking like a leaf. Because here's what's in the balance. It's not only his life, but the life of the entire nation weighs in the balance. Was it done right? Did we do it right? Did we select the right goat? Did he do it according to the prescribed order? Did he wash himself the way he was supposed to wash? Did he do it exactly the way the Word of God said do it? Because if he goes in there into the most holy place, I'll give you three guesses and the first two do not count. If he goes in there to the most holy place and any of that is not according to the Word of God, any of that is done in error, care to guess what happens to him? Death. He doesn't come out. He dies there in the most holy place. Because he has nothing but the judgment of God upon him if it's not done right. So he walks in there with fear. And I'm, you're talking about holy fear because he walks into a place where there's nothing but a holy God. God's presence is there. And his presence is hovering above the mercy seat. And God's looking down. And he's looking down on that mercy seat. Covering over the law of God within that does nothing but expose us as sinners. And condemns us for the judgment we deserve as a result of our sin. But interposed or in between what God would see by looking down at the law, he sees the mercy seat. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. But listen, here's what's necessary. Just because the mercy seat's there doesn't mean mercy's going to be granted. There has to be blood placed on the mercy seat. You see, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So he takes his finger, according to the, the instructions given to Moses, straight from God, and he dips that in the basin with the blood, and he begins to spread it over the mercy seat. Now, Spencer's going to put up a picture of the mercy seat, and we talked about this, and we talked about how that the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin... In that, the law contained in the uh, Ark of the Covenant exposes us as sinners. That's the purpose of the law. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law is to expose our need of a Savior because we are condemned in our sin. And that's the sin that the law brings about, exposing us as sinners. And then, judgment is hovering above. Manifest presence of the very living God Himself who is angry with sinners, but also happens to love them. And in between, interposed, the go-between, the mediator, is the righteousness of God, and the righteousness of God is found in His Son. So Jesus steps in between 
a judgmental, angry God and sinners like you and I, and He steps in between. And as a symbol of coming attraction, His blood is one day going to be spread across that mercy seat. So that when God looks down at the mercy seat, instead of seeing the law that's contained in there that would cause us to incur God's judgment that quick, He sees the mercy seat. But not only does He see the mercy seat, but He sees the blood spread over it. Then when He sees the blood spread over it, it appeases or satisfies His judgment against the sin that the law condemns us to be, the sinners that law con condemns us to be. And so when he looks down, he sees the blood. And when he sees the blood, he passes over all the repentant sins of every last one of us who repented toward God and put faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That's what the throne of heaven looks like. And this priest went in there one day a year, and could you imagine, shaken with that basin, Shaking, wondering, wondering whether or not he's going to accept the sacrifice. Am I going to come out of here alive? And then, before he does that, they take, as we learn in verse 21 of Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest takes his hands and he places them over the scapegoat. Because remember, there are two goats involved here. There's one goat whose throat is cut. The scapegoat, however, he places his hands over the scapegoat and he confesses the sin of the nation over the scapegoat. And what do they do? They take the scapegoat and they run him out into the wilderness into an uninhabited place, never to be seen again. Some stories say it and it's extra biblical, but it's good to think about it and I'm not going to go there because we don't have the Bible to back it up, but some tradition says that they took him and backed him up over a cliff and ran him so far out that he destroyed himself, backed over a cliff. Nonetheless, he was driven out of the camp to give us symbolic truth of what day, what one day would become a reality. There was a day that was going to come. There was a day that was going to come when God from heaven was going to reach down and put His hands on the head of His Son. And He was going to take the head of His Son and crown Him with a crown of thorns. And those crown of thorns represent the curse that came about as a result of our sin and rebellion in the garden. He became a curse he became the curse of sin. And because God was going to coronate His Son, not with a golden crown, that came afterwards, but with a crown of thorns. He's the scapegoat. He's the one who took the sin for our, on, in our place. He's the one that not only atoned for our sin, but He took it away. The Bible says that John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit from his birth. Josh, from the moment that he was conceived in the womb, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, the first thing that John had that we have in the Bible recorded, when John looked up, John the Baptist, and he saw the Lamb of God, he was full of the Holy Spirit so he could recognize Him. The first words that we've got spoken that John ever said when he saw Jesus as an adult, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He might as well have said, Behold the scapegoat. This is Him. That's Him. He's the one who's going to take it away. Hallelujah. 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 Now, so that's how we can understand. Go back to Romans chapter 4. Go back to Romans chapter 4. And this is how we understand Romans chapter 4. Look at this. Follow with me. Romans chapter 4. 
This is David celebrating these truths. Look what he says. He's quoting from Psalm 32. I said 103 a while ago. I'm sorry about that. I was wrong. He's quoting from Psalm 32. Here's what he says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Now, there are several words. There are several words in the New Testament, Greek words, from which the word forgiven is translated. The word that the Holy Spirit chose here is a word that means to send off or to send away. That's what the word means. So you could literally say, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are sent off or sent away. It is the same word that was translated in verse 36 of chapter 13 of Matthew when, Jesus, when it was said of Jesus that he sent the multitudes away. Same word. So, literally it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are sent away and those whose sins are covered. Okay? Two goats. One of them is a scapegoat. The sin is symbolically placed on his head by the priest by confessing the sin over his head and touching his head. He's sent out into an uninhabited place never to come back again, the scapegoat. The other goat, his throat is cut. He's bled to death. His blood goes into a basin. And his blood is carried inside to the most holy place by the high priest alone. He goes in there, sprinkles that blood, spreads that blood with his finger over the mercy seat to cover our sins. David is celebrating the symbolic truth of the tabernacle right here. Blessed are those to whom have put their trust in the scapegoat. Their sins have been sent away. And blessed are those who put their trust in the one who entered the holy place of heaven with his own blood, spread it over the mercy seat. God's righteous judgment was satisfied or appeased or propitiated like we studied last week. And not only have his sins been covered, his sins have been forgiven, his sins have been thrown away. Through the gospel, friends, as a believer, we have the hope that not only has the penalty of our sin been taken care of, but the power that our sin has to rule over us and that one day we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin itself. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Use your imagination with me for a minute. Two and a half million people or so, and they're all lined up according to a prescribed order in the form of a cross. In the form of a cross, there at the Day of the Atonement, the most reverent, high, and holy feast that they've been given, that day, that one day, they're all arrayed there looking at the center of attention which is the tabernacle itself. And they're watching and they're waiting. And they've seen the priest and they've seen him slain the bull. And he goes in there and he presents that for his own sins. Then he comes out. He takes the scapegoat, lays hands on him, drives him out. Because his sins, our sins are taken away. Then he cuts the throat of the other goat in sacrifice and walks in there with his blood. And while he's in there and he's meticulously spreading that blood over the mercy seat, everybody's sitting there wondering. Could you imagine what it was like to be a father with your wife and children? And you're there with your family. And you're anticipating, oh God, oh God, oh God accept this sacrifice. Because what weighs in the balance is the life of my wife and my precious children. We will not 
live as a nation. We will not survive. We will incur your righteous judgment if he doesn't come out of there. Oh God, be appeased. Oh God, be propitiated. Oh God, may our sins be atoned for. So with all the anticipation, they're waiting. And they're waiting. And they're watching. And they're waiting. And he's in there doing his business. And he's doing exactly what he ought to be doing. And they're watching. And they're waiting. And they're looking at their sundials. And they're going, wait. Wait. Is he going to come out? Is he going to come out? Is he going to come out? And while they're doing that, and they're sitting there watching and waiting. Could you imagine the anticipation? Oh my goodness. It took longer than it did last year. Could it be that he's laying there dead on the floor? He's had time enough, hasn't he? I look up at Ray. Ray, hadn't he had time enough to go in there or not? He said, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Mark? Has he had time enough to go in there? What do you think? What do you think? We all have a vested interest in this. We're not just watching as casual observers. My life weighs in the balance. Your life weighs in the balance. Is he going to come out? Is he going to come out? Could you imagine the shouting that must have taken place? Could you imagine the chorus of praise? Could you imagine the undignified dancing that must have went on just as soon as that curtain rolls back and you see him walk out and everybody goes, Hallelujah! 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 We get to live. You think they went, Well, gosh, that was nice. Now where's supper? We just endured another Sunday. Just endured another time to go through the motions. He came out. Big deal. Big deal. Big deal that he came out. Big deal. Because what weighed in the balances is our future as a nation. What weighed in balances is very life and breath and nostril. The, the nostrils through which it travels and the heartbeat that I'm working on right now. Always in the balance. Imagine what it must have been for the people in the front row, the ones who were in the tribes that were closest to the tabernacle. I tell you what happened. You know what happened. Word got out. He came out. He's alive. He's alive. And it went from one row to the next row to the next row to the next row until it finally got all the way back to the Z's. And it said, He came out. He came out. He came out. You, know, you might not be able to tell from the back of the cheap seats, but He came out. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's alive. Amen. You want to know the symbolism of it? Let's look at the symbolism of it. Look at Hebrews, first of all, before we take a trip there. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. You know what, Brian? Some of this swirls around the fact that we as the redeemed have gotten over getting saved. Some of it. In the next few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why are we going to celebrate the Lord's Supper? God didn't suggest it. He commanded us to do it. What did He say? This do... Remembrance of me until I come. What's the implication? It is our tendency to forget. Why do you have to have the Lord's Supper in order to remember His death, burial, and resurrection were it not necessary for us to keep from moving away from it and coming indifferent and coy about it and apathetic about it? It's the purpose for which it was given. 
Because God knows our nature. God knows how given we are to be so focused on the earthly cares and earthly matters that we forget heavenly truth. Bless His holy name. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 15, so it's going to be a long trip. Just hang in there. Speaking of and contrast, contrasting the earthly tabernacle with the heavenly tabernacle. Are you ready? And that, that's done throughout the book of Hebrews. He's talking about the tabernacle. He said, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Now what day was that? Day of Atonement. We're, we're talking about right now. Okay. He went in there once per year. And this is the title of our series. Not without blood. He wouldn't dare go in there without blood. I'll assure you of that. Because if he went in there without blood, it meant his sure death. Just like that. And look what it says. Which he offered for himself. Remember the bull. Had to offer the bullet for himself. And he offered the goats for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. What is the way into the holiness of all? What does it say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Jesus had not yet come, is what that means. He was not yet on earth. He had not yet come to earth. But it was symbolic for the present time in which, in which both gifts and sacrifices are altered, which cannot make him who performed the services perfect in regard to the conscience. It was concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. I've told you time and again this, and Ray serves as a chaplain over at uh, the prison here in Cobb County. My grandfather was a part-time chaplain at Reesville State Prison in South Georgia for 26 years. And he would go into the prisoners and he would talk to them and minister to countless prisoners over the years. And my grandfather was bold about the gospel. And he would tell them, he said, let me tell you this, the state of Georgia wants to rehabilitate you, but Jesus Christ wants to regenerate you. And he said, if you get rehabilitated, you'll probably be back here. But if you get regenerated and you get released, we'll probably never see you again. See, external washing. We just want to find some way to make us clean. You know, consecrated living. If I can just do it right. If I can just work hard enough and be kind enough and be nice enough and people think enough of me. If I can just get this dirt off me somehow or another. That was all concerned with the externals. Only Jesus Christ and His blood deals with the internals. And the time of reformation had not yet come because Jesus Christ is the only one who can transform a human heart. And so there was external things, but these are heavenly things we're speaking of. But listen to this. Oh man, some of the buts, B-U-T's in the Bible are just so transitional. Look at this. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. 
the heavenly tabernacle, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for you and I. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus Christ was the only one who was qualified to enter into heaven itself. Jesus Christ came from heaven itself because he's God. He became a man and took on human flesh. Literally shed his blood on Calvary as a substitute, sin offering, sacrifice for you and I who were redeemed. Purchased for us eternal redemption. Took us off the slave block. Purchased by God. Not to be put on the market anymore. Hallelujah. 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 And then when he offered up his atoning sacrifice, literally took the basin with filled with his blood, and he went into not an earthly tabernacle made by men, but he went into heaven itself. And when he went into heaven itself and he spread his blood over the mercy seat, the Father looked and said, Sacrifice accepted. That took care of Al Ogilby's every last one of his sins. He's free. Hallelujah. Amen. And what did God do? You know what? Here's the analogy. This is it. We look with anticipation. They looked to see if the high priest would come out. A temporary high priest. Little H, little G. We look to see if the big H, high priest, big P, comes out. And he did. Let me tell you, look, watch this. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. Matthew 28, verse 9. Two women, the women who go to the grave after Jesus was crucified with spices that they had prepared in order to prepare his body, which wasn't adequately prepared for its resting place. You know the story. They were met by two angels. And one of them informs them. He said, listen, here's the deal. He's not here. He's not here. He's been risen from the grave. And boy, they didn't know what all that meant. But he said, listen, you go back and tell the disciples he's alive. Hallelujah, he's alive. And so they, in their rush to go back, they're met by our Lord himself. And look what happens. These are the, I'd encourage you, underline this in your Bible so you can go back and refer to it. The first word uttered out of the Savior's mouth that we know of after he was raised from the dead, the first word he spoken in Scripture is recorded in this verse right here. And this is it. Look at it in verse 9. And they went to tell his disciples, this is chapter 28, Matthew, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! You know what he meant? You know what he meant? I've been to heaven. I've spread across my blood over the mercy seat. The Father looked down and accepted the sacrifice. I've come back down here. You are forgiven forever. Your sins have been washed away, thrown away, covered, atoned for. You are free. You are righteous as a gift by trusting in me. Rejoice! I came out alive. Hallelujah. See, the gospel and our confidence in the gospel has nothing to do with whether or not we did it right. Our confidence in the gospel has to do with whether or not Christ did it right. 
He was the selected lamb. The goats were chosen by lot. And God was in charge of how it was going to turn out. They threw the dice in effect. And God made the dice turn exactly the way He wanted them to turn. Because He would already selected two goats to serve as the sacrifice. And God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And listen, friends, the sacrifice was accepted. Jesus did it right. He came out of the grave. And that was the equivalent of that priest coming out of the most holy place. And as soon as they saw Him emerge, they knew the sacrifice had been accepted. And friends, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the sacrifice was accepted. You are free. Rejoice. You have permission to. You are free. If you're a believer, you are free. You are liberated, you're the righteousness of God in Him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. You're talking about high drama. My goodness alive. Look at Romans 4, 25. We talked about this verse time and again. This verse is just teeming with meaning. But look at it. In Romans 4, 25 it says, Jesus was delivered up for our offenses, our sins, but He was raised for our justifications. Remember we talked about it. He was put on the cross to pay for our sins, but He was raised as God's declaration to the heavenly realm, sacrifice accepted. Do you know why worship goes from Saturday to Sunday? you know why we today set apart traditionally as Sunday to worship. It's not because we're worshiping a day. You know why? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection occurred on the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. Sunday and every other day in the life of a believer ought to be a reminder of the resurrection. He's alive. And He's not going to die again because it was enough. Hallelujah. And you and I can be confident that the atoning sacrifice was accepted by God the Father and God's righteous judgment has been appeased and completely satisfied through the death of His Son. And for those who repent toward God and put faith in His Son, you are justified before a holy God. That means God declares from heaven, the only judge that counts, that God declares from heaven for all the redeemed, all of us now, you are not guilty. You're not guilty. Let me ask you something. Do you think that already evoked just a little bit of joy? Do you think you could make the case that maybe there ought to be a little bit of rejoicing in the body of Christ? I took a seminary class once on the worship of God. I've, I've mentioned this many times before. I took a class on worship. And I remember reading through the textbook and the required reading that we had to do. I still got the book. And I remember something, Marlon, that just leaped off the page at me when I read it. Here's what it said. It said, worship in the early church, Danny, was celebratory. You know why? Because of the resurrection. They seen him alive. <laughs> it's like, hey, he beat death. Lie me up with him. You know what I mean? I'll get on his side. Put me on his team. If he can beat death, I'll be on his team. That validated everything that Jesus claimed. It sealed everything for which we place our trust. God did it right. His Son did it right. Sacrifice accepted. Enjoy your liberty. You know what leads to holy living? 
not the desire to gain favor with God, because if it was a believer, you already have favor with God through His Son. What leads to holy living is an understanding and appreciation for what He's already done, and because you have His favor. That's the incentive to live holy. Not to get His favor, but because by grace you have it. Have you tasted of it? Has that become cold and indifferent? Has the Christian life become routine? One of the things I tell my children, I go ahead and speak this out loud, and they'll get on to me later. One of the things I tell my children is this. I said, one of my prayers for you is this. That because you have been raised in a Christian home, and you've heard about Jesus before you ever came out of the womb, that you never live to grow up and take Him for granted. And you never live to grow up and take your salvation for granted. And never ever believe that you deserve it one iota more than somebody who gets saved on death row. That you'd never get over the fact that you were a sinner in rebellion and hopelessness and Christ redeemed you there. And don't ever lose your gratitude for that. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for this church. That's my prayer for me. I think we ought to ask God to forgive us because in large measure it just seems like we've gotten over that. We've moved beyond that. And sometimes it'll hit us in a fresh way. We'll get into the Word. And all of a sudden one of those cathead biscuits from the griddle of glory will be served up and you'll take a you know, real big bite and you'll realize in a fresh way, oh my, He redeemed me. An unworthy sinner, look what He's done for me. Lord, you can have it all. You can have it. I surrender. Not to get redeemed, but because I am. Amen.